John chapter 6 this morning. Take your open your Bibles, and we're going to continue in our series that we're doing in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're uh, spent about 13 weeks so far, and we're just beginning chapter 6 as we're walking our way through the Gospel of John. And in case I forget, do me a favor and make sure you silence those phones and uh, make sure you take care of that. So uh, always. You don't want to be that guy or gal, you know, that goes off, and so appreciate that. That helps without distractions. John chapter 6. When you see something, uh, the gospel of John is what we, often, what we refer to as the fourth gospel. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as the synoptic gospels. They genuinely follow a rough chronology timeline of the events in Jesus' life. John, as we know, has a different uh, purpose by which he is writing. Remember scripture that is at the end of the Gospel of John, John 20, verse 31. John tells us that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has a different purpose. He has a different uh, goal in why he's writing. So the reason I mention that is because there's a lot of information and events that John does not include in his account. He's not trying to necessarily follow a chronology timeline of the life of Jesus. He has kind of a different approach as we see in 2031, the scripture that we look at most every week as a reminder, his goal is to present Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, and to kind of build the events in Jesus's life that foster and promote belief and acceptance that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. So I say that to, uh, as we come to verse 1, in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, it says right there, the two words, it begins, after this. Now, those are just two little words there, but what is missing between chapter 6 and chapter 5 is a whole host of events and activities that Jesus did in what was we call the Galilean ministry, his ministry in Galilee. John chooses not to include all those details because, you know, again, John has a different goal. And if you want to know what went on between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, you can go to uh, Luke 6 through 9 or Mark 3 through 6, and you'll read events, and that kind of is where they get sandwiched in between chapter 5 and chapter 6. But one of the things that we find in John's account that we find in all four of the Gospels is the account of what we're going to read this morning of Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus feeding the multitude. That is in every one of, of the um, gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So when something, I mean, it's all important, but when you see something that is in all four, it kind of underscores the significance of why they wanted to make sure this was included. And just to kind of set the stage a little bit, in John, after we came off of John 4, uh, and again, this is information that Luke and Mark give us. But the disciples had just finished their preaching tour. Remember, Jesus sent them out two by two, and they went out and they're preaching and they're ministering. Uh, they had learned something else that happened between uh, in this time that John, the Apostle John that's writing the gospel according to John, doesn't tell us. But we also know that in between was the death of John the Baptist that took place. Many of the disciples were former disciples of John the Baptist. And so you can imagine after they've uh, been ministering for a significant amount of time, they're weary, they need to, to rest, they need to process the death of John the Baptist, and certainly that would maybe increase some uh, unrest and fear. And on top of all that, the Bible tells us that this, the Passover was near. So that is coming up, and there's certain preparation that needs to come up. Now, the reason I kind of give all that backdrop is when you look at verse 2, where the Bible says, and a large crowd was following him. And verse 5, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was following him, and that begins the events 
of this feeding of the multitude. Now here's what I want you to just kind of keep in mind. The disciples and Jesus, they're coming from involved in a lot of ministry. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of anxiety, the death of John the Baptist. And they just frankly need some time to kind of rest and process. And it's in that moment, you're like, the last thing that we want to see is a, and deal with is a bunch of people that are hungry. Here's a newsflash. Sometimes the very things that God wants to do in our life come at the most inconvenient moments. Can you say amen to that, right? And that's what I want you to see here is kind of the backdrop. So as we look at this uh, miracle of the feeding of this multitude, we obviously look at the Word of God to instruct us and encourage us. And so just as Jesus' disciples then, us being disciples now, we need reminders, we need encouragement that is going to strengthen our faith and confidence in Christ. And so the title of this morning's message is called The Lesson of the Loaves. The Lesson of the Loaves. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. But before we do that, why don't we take a moment to pray and ask the Lord's direction to help us with the word this morning. Can we do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, Lord, that you speak to us through the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that we are here and we can listen to the word of God being uh, read and, and taught. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. We pray also that you will help us, God, to take the word and not be mere, uh, just not be hearers only, but to let the Holy Spirit apply the word to our lives and heart that we may continue to walk in faithfulness and obedience to you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is pleasing and acceptable in your sight, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Three lessons that I want you to note with me in John chapter 6 about what God teaches us in our expectation when we are put in a situation that is somewhat of an impossible situation. And there's three lessons here I would note this morning. The first is what I'm calling the yardstick lesson. The yardstick lesson. How do you measure things? This miracle, we're going to see how the disciples measured the, the situation. And the principle is this. Do not uh, is not to don't measure a problem or challenge according to your own ability. If you have a listener's guide, you see where you can uh, put that in there. Do not measure a challenge, a trial, a problem according to your own ability. And we see that's a little bit of what's going on here. John verse five, chapter six, verse five. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, there's a lot of people. In fact, again, the New Testament there says talks about 5,000. But in reality, it is probably close to 10 to 15,000 because typically the writers only counted usually the adult males. So if you add in... Wife, children, it could have easily been over 10,000 people. That's a lot of folks to show up at your house for supper. I always think of my nana, my grandmother. When I was a kid, I used to ask her about, uh, as she, this was before Ancestry.com, and asked her, did you register or have you looked into researching about some... Uh, relatives that, uh, you know, were in your past history and that you've lost contact with? And her answer was, no, I don't want to do that because I don't want people showing up for dinner and expecting me to feed them. <laughs> that was her response. But that was my nana, all right? Sometimes, and here's what I want you to see, is sometimes when we look at an impossible scenario, a circumstance in our life, and then we look at our ability to address that, it can be pretty depressing. And yet God allows situations 
to come into our lives. And so the question is, what kind of measuring stick are we using? What is the yardstick that we are using? And so the first lesson that Jesus instructs his disciples and provides us with this instruction in this miracle is that we are not to measure, not to use the yardstick to measure the situation according to what my resources have, my abilities. You know, Jesus loves impossible situations. Remember a few weeks back we were in John chapter 4 and Jesus came upon the man at the uh, the well there at, called Bethesda, and he was paralyzed. He couldn't walk. Impossible situation. The Bible says that he was there 38 years. Was no, there's no problem for Jesus, was it? Jesus specializes in impossible situations. God loves impossible situations. He loves it. Why? Because it's the opportunity that God provides us in our life, for him to demonstrate his goodness, his power, his care, and to enable us to have confidence in his shepherding for our lives. Jesus loves the impossible. And, and read with me in verse 6, when Jesus asked Philip this question, it says in verse 6 that Jesus said this to Philip to do what? To test him. Now look at this, don't miss this. You ought to underline this in your Bible, highlight it on your tablet, whatever. For he himself, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. But it says he asked this question to test Philip. Jesus was not worried about how they were going to do this. Jesus was not worried about that. Jesus already knew, but he did it, asked this question... To test Philip. Now, this is not a fill-in-the-blank kind of test. I was not a good test taker. For some reason, my mind would just go blank for about five minutes when I would look at that questions or those S, whatever it is. And I would always have this sense of panic that I studied the wrong questions. Like, he's, you know, he's asking me stuff that... I didn't study for it because, you know, you kind of memorize certain things or whatever, and they always like, I think teachers love to kind of, you know, let's give some curveballs. Let's really make it hard. Well, what is a test for? Whether it's an academic test or you're testing a structure, it's to reveal impurities, weaknesses, or or, or in a school test, it's to reveal what you don't know. It isn't to devastate you. So Jesus is using this and asking this question to reveal, not for Jesus' information. Guess what? You know, Jesus has never had to learn anything. God has never had to learn anything. I know we pray that way. Lord, help Miss So-and-so. You know, she lives on Maple Street, you know, third house on the left. You know, the one with the little pine tree. You know, he doesn't have to learn anything. He's all-knowing. And he already knew what he would do. God puts us in in impossible situations, and there's three reasons why that are in your listener's guide. Number one, he puts us in impossible situations to stretch our undeveloped faith. Faith. Undeveloped faith. He wants to stretch us. He wants to stretch our undeveloped faith. Secondly, he also puts us in impossible situations to strengthen our eternal hope. There's nothing worse than, than to be lost without hope, regardless of the difficulty in this life, that we are not people who do not have, that we are not without hope. And it's not a hope so. It's a hope. It's an anchor. And then he also puts us in impossible circumstances, and I think this is one of the main reasons uh, for our life, is to show his incredible love for us. It isn't to play with us. It isn't to manipulate us. It isn't to play games with us. He's doing it because what is his goal? What does Jesus want to do? He wants to increase our dependency on him and less of ourselves. He wants us to have confidence in who he is 
as our good shepherd. He is our good shepherd. And so he loves us and he wants us to know him in a deeper and more complete way to trust him. And by trusting him, trust and obey, as the old hymn says, that we obey because we trust his guidance and his leadership. The other thing I would point out here is notice that when Jesus asked this question, he kind of let them struggle a little bit with it. He already knew the answer. He already knew what he was going to do. But he kind of just maybe enjoyed them kind of dancing around with it. Verse 7, we see Philip answered him. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One denarii was the average rural worker, blue-collar wage that a person was paid. One. So 200 would be multiple work days. And he said even then that wouldn't be enough to buy enough food for this crowd. That wasn't what Jesus asked him. You ever notice even back in John 4 when he asked the man at the well, do you want to be well? And what did the man say? Well, I don't have anybody to help me to get in the water. And everybody runs in front of me and blah, blah, blah. That wasn't what Jesus asked. Jesus didn't ask him uh, about his ability. He didn't uh, ask. He, Jesus said, where shall we buy bread? And Philip immediately goes into how much it's going to cost. In other words, based on our resources and our abilities, there's no way. There's no way. And Philip has forgotten who he's talking to. When you and I learn the lesson about how to measure things and how to trust God regardless of what my resources are, regardless of what my abilities are, that some of us that struggle with the anxiety and the worry and even depression. And we learn to rely more and more upon the inexhaustible resources that Christ can provide. Am I measuring the situation, the problem, my little yardstick, and I'm measuring it and saying, God, um, uh, yep, I can't do this. This is going to be a wipeout. This is not going to happen. The yardstick lesson. But we see something else in verse 8 and 9. We see another of his disciples, and that's going to lead us to the second observation. One of his disciples, Andrew, remember Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Andrew says, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So the second lesson that we need to learn is what is I call the scales lesson. The scales lesson. And the principle is this. It's real simple. Little in the hands of Jesus become what? Become much. It's interesting to look at Philip and Andrew and their different perspectives and the way that they approached the situation. Philip looks at the scope of the problem, and says it's impossible because it would take too much. It would take too much. Can't do it. He, he, he's focused on the scope of the problem. It's too big. Andrew looks at the smallness of the provision and says it's impossible. We have too little. Now, which one of those do you and I fit in? Probably both, right? Probably both at any day and time. You and I can look at a problem from every human angle, get advice, get the most sound advice, pay for advice, and still not see it the way God sees it. Jesus is wanting the disciples then and here to see whatever is a lack Whatever the crisis is, whatever the problem is, see it God's way. Philip looked at the crowd and not Christ. Andrew looked at the loaves, said it's not enough, and not to the Lord. I think it's interesting that Andrew, you know, sometimes 
I've walked away from many conversations, many more than I care to admit. And I look back and think, you know, I should have just ended that conversation here. But I had to keep going. I had to keep digging in. And I'm like, Andrew, he was just one sentence short of great faith. What did he say? He said, here's the need. Where are we going to get food? Where are we going to buy bread? And he says, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Period. Full stop. He just stopped there and then just said, Jesus, here you go. Let me, let's see what we're going to do. You're going to do with this. But he had to keep talking, didn't he? What did he say? He had to say, but how far can this be for so many? It's not enough. A couple of fish, they're about the size of sardines and some barley loaves. I don't know what a barley loaf is, but it really doesn't sound like something I would order at Panera. <laughs> you see, to Philip, the one who says it would take too much, listen to me, to the one who says it would take too much, Philip, Jesus is saying there is no need, there's no such thing as too much in Jesus' vocabulary. There's no such thing as, oh, that's too far health-wise can't heal that situation. That's too far gone. That is not in Jesus' vocabulary. Jesus is not limited. And to Andrew, who said, we have too little, we don't have enough to even barely feed one of us, again, it's little is much when it's in the hands of Jesus. But what do we want to do? We want to hoard it. We want to keep it. We want to try to manage our own resources and say, Lord, here's my gift. Here's my sacrificial gift. It may not be as much maybe as this person or that person, but here's my gift knowing that when it is put by faith into your hands for your use, God, you can take my little fish, my little bits of sandwich bread, you can take what I have, and again, if it was just left to me, it would be impossible, but I'm putting it into the hands who knows no limit of impossibilities. It's all is possible in the hands of Christ. When you look at Philip, we have to ask ourselves the question, and here we want to bring it down a little closer to home. When we look at Philip, what have I decided in my own life that is too big for God to do? Sometimes we, probably out here, we have something that, you know, we might put on a good face of faith, but really, we've kind of decided, you know, that's really just too big for God to accomplish. And then you look at Andrew and ask the question, what have, I, what have I decided in myself that is too little for God to work with? You know, I don't, you know, you may say, and there's people that say, say well, I don't have a lot to offer the church. Listen, if you are a born-again believer... Filled with His Holy Spirit, God has gifted you. There's no born-again believer that does not have a spiritual gift, more than one. And if God has saved you and He's placed you sovereignly into not only His global church, but His local church, He has put you there not to be an idle, I-D-L-E, a passive listener. He has put you there because you are an intrinsic part of his body and the church needs you and cannot function properly until you're walking in the fullness of that which God has equipped you and gifted you. But you say, but you know, I, I don't have any ability. I never graduated from high school. I never did this. I never did that. I find it a struggle to read. I find this, that. You know what? Every excuse people use to be inactive in the church. Or you say, oh, I would love to, I'd love to be more committed, more involved, do more, but, you know, I just don't have enough, and then you just fill in the blank. I don't have enough time. 
I don't have enough money. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough whatever. Here's a little secret. You're never going to have enough. I was telling somebody that recently. You're, you know, about waiting to have children. Well, we want to wait till we have enough, you know, to provide. Hello? Dream on. That's, you're never going to have enough. So again, as you're looking at your resources, yes, <laughs> there's never going to be enough. A little in the hands of Jesus produces much. Isn't that the pattern of just so many people in Scripture? We could go through and look at different people. The one that comes to my mind is David as a, as a teenager. And all these warriors saw the king of Israel intimidated with this Philistine, this Goliath. And David comes along, and what does he have? He's got a little slingshot and some rocks. They just laugh. But David knew his God. David knew what is little in the hands of Almighty God can be powerful. And we know that pattern all throughout Scripture. Look at your, your guide there and look at these four reasons, four observations of why God does this in our life. This pattern. God reduces our resources. All these are meant to drive us to a dependency. You realize sometimes it's God who reduces our resources. Sometimes it's God who dries up the business, dries up the investment. Sometimes it's God who lets you get to a place. Why? What is He wanting you to do? He's wanting you to be dependent upon Him. See, we're all good at saying, uh, you know, like the rich, the, the, the man that they refer to as the rich young ruler in the New Testament. He's called a rich young ruler. He was a wealthy young man. And I'm sure when he came into that group, the disciples may have thought, oh, finally, we don't have to be sleeping outside and we can eat something besides fish and barley loaves or whatever it is. And finally, we got somebody that can bring a little class to this group. And Jesus really didn't help the situation, did he? I mean, he started pressing upon him. And see, the Bible says he went away sad because he had many riches. Jesus, it wasn't an issue about money per se, unless the money has you. You see, he wouldn't come to Christ as long as he didn't have to give up his abundant resources. Jesus said, as long as you have that, you're never going to be dependent on me. It's easy, can, can we agree, it is easy to trust God when our bank account's in the black, we've got some savings and food in the fridge, and, you know, we can hoop and holler and shout hallelujah and all day long. But let God dry some of that up a little bit. And all of a sudden, we're just pleading like Job, you know, what's going on here? My life is ruined, my life is over. Look at Israel. God was the one that time and time again dried up their resources. They were an agricultural uh, environment, community. God would bring lack of rain. He would bring things that all of a sudden what was once abundance, now there's lack. Why has God, why has God brought me to this place? What is he trying to get my attention to do? Because I don't know about you, but I can be really stubborn with the Lord. And sometimes he has to take a spiritual two-by-four, a Thompson chain large print, King James Version, and whack me on the head. Notice also, not only God reduces our resources, but God sometimes magnifies our need. I mean, I thought... They didn't seem overly concerned until Jesus brought the subject up of where are we going to get food? And all of a sudden now there's full-scale panic about food. You ever have to be somewhere and somebody, you know, you're just kind of mind your own business, daydreaming a little bit. 
and somebody will say, wow, it is really cold in here. And all of a sudden you're like, yeah, it is cold. I, I, I'm freezing. I'm, I'm, I'm really cold. You know? And all of a sudden the situation is magnified because everybody else is saying, yeah, it's really cold in here. It's really, or hot. See, right now I'm hot. Some of you are cold. So we're, it balances out, okay? You can live your warmth through, through me, all right? there. So the situation is magnified. Not just disciples, 12 guys Where are we going to get enough food? We're talking about thousands. The problem is huge. And Jesus is like, that's okay. Why didn't he bring this up earlier? Did Jesus know that there was going to be a crowd following him? Yes. Remember he did to test him. Also, in this scenario, someone, someone needs to trust God with what little they have. You see, we're always waiting for somebody else to believe for God, for us. We're always waiting for somebody else. Someone trusts God with their little whatever it is they're bringing. But God wants us to trust Him with what little resources we have. But we're always like, you know, let Pastor Tim, let the elders, let somebody else do that. And I'll be right behind them. But God's saying, no, 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 I want you. Somebody's got to trust God in this situation. We're all just in a panic. That's not going to help anybody. Somebody has to trust God. And the fact that somebody came forward, I mean, look at this. We don't know anything about this little kid or this, you know, boy. There's a lot of myths going around, you know, in church history. Saw read one where they said this was the original little drummer boy. No, that's all myth, made up. Don't buy into, I don't care what the Hallmark card says. Don't buy it, okay? We don't know anything. When you get to heaven, you can have a little barley fish sandwich lunch with him or whatever. Uh, We don't know, but listen, this kid, in the midst of all these people, in the midst of these 12 disciples, he at least stepped forward and said, well, what about this? What about this? The Bible says that Jesus said in Mark 10, 15, that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. There's something about just childlike, simple faith. But notice also, God uses the little we have to show, and I think again, don't miss this, God uses the little that we have to show how great He is. So that we don't say, oh, the little boy, when all that happened, I don't think the little boy went around saying, hey, look at how I fed this crowd. When Jesus rode that donkey and everybody's singing Hosanna, I don't think the donkey thought that all that praise was for Him. Some of you and Kathleen will get that in about 10 minutes, all right? I live in Kathleen so I can pick on us, all right? The little boy didn't go around saying, look at what I did. No, it was look at what Jesus did with the little that was put into his hand of unlimited resources. Verse 10, five five small loaves and two small fish. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. This was springtime. Passover was, was coming on, so we know it was springtime. There was a lot of grass there, green grass. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Again, it was, could be easily 10,000. And there was great anticipation over what is going to happen. Now, don't forget, most of these same individuals, these disciples of Jesus, they remember, many of them were back in chapter 2. What happened in chapter 2? Jesus and some of his disciples were at a wedding. They ran out of wine. They saw the miracle of multiplication not that far back. You would think they would be like, oh, hey, this is kind of like that wedding thing. Let's see what Jesus does. That isn't kind of the tempo we, we see here. But notice what Jesus does. They're anticipating What's going to happen? Where is it? Is it going to come out like manna in the wilderness? I mean, where is this food is going to come from? 
And Jesus does something. He just took the loaves, verse 11, when he had given thanks. Like, okay, Jesus, uh, that's good. You're praying over the food. That's good, but come on, we need, we need something besides prayer. Remember this church trustee, was? they were at a meeting and they were talking about some problem issues in the church and the pastor got up and said, well, I guess we just, re, you know, I guess we should just pray. And the trustee stood up and said, oh my goodness, have we reached that place that that's all we can do? No, that's the first thing we should do. Pray, but don't miss this. Little in his hands. Jesus teaches us something always in the way he prays. When the disciples heard him pray, they said, we want to pray like that. Jesus is teaching us something here to do what? To be thankful in every circumstance. But what do we do? We gripe in every circumstance. Jesus took the little that God has provided, knowing that God's math is not our math. God has multiplication that we is on steroids, right? We can't, and so he gave thanks. Do we give thanks? Or do we just say, look at how empty the things are that I, I don't have. But Jesus shows us that he took this little resource that a little kid provided. In verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, it says he distributed, it, uh, he distributed them to those who were seated. Now, if you have a King James or New King James, you probably have a little bit longer part of verse 11. Some of the uh, newer translations, there's some question as far as the, whether that was in the original or not. I'm not smart enough to debate all those things. It doesn't, it doesn't you know, undergird doctrine or anything like that. But I just kind of refer, if we're using the ESV, that's what we uh, use here publicly, uh, I'll refer and have Mark 6.41 that gives us a little insight I'm not sure if I have it on the screen or not, Mark 6.41. But Mark 6.41 gives us, uh, and again, if you have a King James or New King James, you'll have this in verse 11. But if you don't, Mark 6.41 says the same event. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves. And notice this, gave them to the disciples to give to the people. The miracle, don't miss this, what happens in the miracle? Jesus let his disciples be part of the miracle that is taking place. First, they're anticipating the miracle. Now they are participating in the miracle. Could God provide manna from heaven the way he did the children of Israel in the wilderness? Yeah, no sweat. He could have easily done that. You think Jesus is like up to a challenge that that's all he's got to work with? No. What is he doing? He's testing them. He's testing you. Do you really anticipate that God can take what little I have, that if I step forward in obedience, that not only will he bless it, but he will include me in the miracle? You know the way needs are provided in the church? Don't usually happen with just stuff falling out of the roof. If it's falling out of the roof, you better get out of the way because it's probably not going to be helpful to you. It's probably something falling apart. It isn't just you come in and find bags of money under the chairs. It isn't just, you know, you, you, we have this... No, how does he do it? He uses it through his body. We're praying, oh God, meet this financial need in so-and-so's life. Bring Daddy Warbucks into this church that can just write a big check. Here's a newsflash. We don't have Daddy Warbucks here. We don't have any big spenders. You know what? This is a church primarily of working class folks. And that's probably a good thing. I was in a, I was in a, a first church I pastored solo. Solo. No, solo. Um... <clears throat> was outside of Chicago, and there was a man in the church that when I say he was a multimillionaire, I mean he alone, his tithe could have easily just met the budget every week. 
But he had enough, he was one of the elders too. And he said, you know, that wouldn't be good for the church if I did that. Now, he earned his money through his family. They had a large uh, nursery. I don't mean chop, but, you know, plant nursery, that type of thing. Uh, he had an airplane. But if you looked at him, he bought his suits from pennies. He lived a very modest lifestyle. Most people that have earned their money have modest lifestyles. They're not out, you know, blowing it like the lotto winner or something. And he had he, resources to the hill. He could have met and paid for a lot of stuff. But you know how the church operated is the people walked in dependency on the Lord and provided. And so that's the way God works. So when we're praying for God to meet this need in this person's life, they told me that they need a car, they need help with their rent, they need help, 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 something here. I better call Pastor Tim. We better find out what we got in the benevolence account. And thankfully, we have many of those things. But sometimes, and you know where I'm going, so don't start daydreaming about going corral. You know where I'm going with this. Sometimes, oftentimes, guess who he has put that need in the forefront in your life for so that you can take your little resource and put it in the hands of Jesus to meet that person's need. That is the way that God operates in the body of Christ. Now, I'm not saying in this church, maybe in this church or another church, how many of you here have ever had a financial or material need met by another person in the church? Here, anywhere? Wow, that's it? Well, we need to do more. We need to pray for more poverty around here. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Look at the last lesson here. Thirdly is the spreadsheet lesson. The spreadsheet lesson, verses 12 through 15. The principle, every encounter with a problem or a challenge can bring increase. Every encounter with a problem, a trial, a challenge, whatever it is, can bring an increase. I started to say this is how we excel in the Christian life. Spreadsheet. Okay, all right. Some of you. All right. I know, I know that was bad. I should have marked it off of here. But here, here's what I want you to not miss. And this is an important perspective as a Christian. Is that trials and tests that come into our life are father-filtered. Do you know what I mean by that? It means that God has allowed this. God is never taken by surprise. God has allowed this. Either through His passive work and allowing it, or there are times scripturally that God has actively caused. Read the history of Israel. Because if we believe that God is sovereign, there is not, as R.C. Sproul said, there's not one renegade molecule running through the universe. If there is, then He is not God. If He's not in absolute control of everything that takes place. But what do we know from Scripture? We know that He takes all those things and in His sovereign love for us works all those, all those things together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now when I say increase, don't immediately think, well, Pastor Tim, he's, he's been reading those health and wealth books again. It may be financial. It might be. I mean, let's not act so holy and pious think, that some of you couldn't use a financial blessing. I'm up for it any time. So if you want to, you know. But sometimes the increase isn't always money. In many cases, that's the very last thing we need. But what the increase is, is that this crisis has pushed me into a deeper walk an assurance with Christ. And I wouldn't have had that had I not had this situation. Listen, 
I've said this before and you know it's true. The single biggest lessons of my life were not caused or not uh, um, as a result of being in a prosperous, healthy, good situation. The deepest lessons of my life have come as a result of pain, trial, heartache, rejection, disappointment, brokenness, on and on and on again. That's been the time, not from fleeing, fleeing and running away from God. My, 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 that's the last thing you need to do. You need to run into God. And it's trials, hardship, that oftentimes drives us. And the increase... Remember what James tells us in James 1? I'm using the New Living Translation, James 1. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know, look at this, when your faith is what? Tested. Your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Verse 12 through 13. And when they had eaten their fill, an impossible problem plus an omnipotent God equals supernatural increase. That's God's miracle math. And when they had eaten their fill, Jesus told his disciples. I mean, think about this. He says, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And they gathered them up and twelve filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Twelve baskets. How many disciples are there? They all got a little doggy bag. <laughs> now, you know what that basket was a reminder of? Because you read another part of the gospel. In fact, the next thing that starts to happen there in John 6 is they, you know, they're crossing over and they're challenged by the storm. And listen to those disciples. We, we need reminders. When the children of Israel crossed over, what were they told to do? Put up stones of remembrance. I have stones of remembrance. This great ring is a graduation ring that, from uh, college that my brother, who might be watching, I couldn't afford it, he bought it for me. That's a stone of remembrance. I have all sorts. Why? Because I need to be reminded constantly, great is thy faithfulness, all I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Because as the other hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone, predisposed to leave the God I love. Come thou fount of every blessing, great hymn. Let me go... These last things real quick. They're already written out in your handout. Just some three takeaways here. Four takeaways. And I appreciate Charles Swindoll sending me those for my sermon. But I thought they were good and I want to include them. And I'm not going to elaborate on them. You can re read them. But very simple. Okay, what do we do with this? Number one, when you're facing the crisis of trial, acknowledge your own inadequacy and the Lord's omnipotence, His all-powerful presence in your life. Acknowledge, I am weak. I have no resources. Secondly, be certain the challenge before you, whatever it is, is it something that you're desiring, you're wanting, that's going to bring honor to the Lord? Is it something that's obeying His commands in Scripture? Is it something that's going to advance the gospel? In other words, is it just some selfish thing that I'm dealing with? Or is it something that's saying, no, and listen, I believe in providing for your family, your household, all those things glorify the Lord. But sometimes we have to 
check our motives. Thirdly, give the challenge back to the Lord, listen, as an opportunity for Him to accomplish it on your behalf and to receive glory for the victory. And fourthly, do what you can. Don't fall into this phony, fatalistic, and call it the sovereignty of God. I've known people, and you might have known people, that are just bums. And they will give a theological spin. Well, I'm just trying, if God wants me to work, you know, He'll just have somebody knock on my door. He'll have somebody break down the door and give me a $60,000 annual. No. You get off your blessed assurance and get a resume together and get out there. Get on Indeed. Quit. What did they do? They supplied. In other words, God, I give, here's the scripture that puts it all together. We'll close with this. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Work out your own salvation. Doesn't say work for. Work out the gospel in your life. Work out truth. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what we bring. We don't bring anything to our salvation except our sin. This is sanctification. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you. Is it me or God? Yes. Both and. It's God working in us. Did Jesus need the disciples? Did he need the little boy's happy meal? Did he need any of that? No. What was he doing? To display his power. What does he want to do in our lives? To display his love and his power in our life. To, to enable us to sleep good at night in the confidence and the rest that God's got this. And I can rely on him. Listen, the people that need faith the most are the faithful. Can you rely on yesterday's faith? No. Could they rely on yesterday's manna, the Old Testament? No. What would they do if they tried to put it in the uh, Tupperware? It would rot. Only one day they could do that. It was the sixth day. They had to double up for the Sabbath. What do I do? I can't be relying on, oh, remember back in the good old days, ten years ago, when we did this, we did that, we did that. Listen, get over the memory lane. What are you doing now? How is God faithful now? Today. What did He do today? What are you relying on Him today? His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's stand to our feet as we close.